Welcome to Someone Else's Movie, the original podcast where an actor, writer, director, or nebulous industry figure gives a little love to a movie they didn't make. I'm Norm Wilner, senior film writer for Now Magazine, and this is The Other Thing I Do. My guest this week is Adam Garnett-Jones, a writer and filmmaker whose debut feature, Fire Song, won the Audience Choice Award at the Imaginative Film Festival in 2015. His follow-up, Great Great Great, which he co-wrote and co-produced with star Sarah Kalaski, was named Best Feature at last year's Canadian Film Festival with special jury awards for its screenplay and Sarah's performance. It's just arrived on iTunes, and you should definitely check it out. Adam picked The Piano, Jane Campion's eerie, evocative 1993 drama starring Holly Hunter as a mute woman who brings her young daughter to New Zealand, where they'll live with a well-to-do farmer, and almost immediately finds herself at odds with everyone and everything around her and drawn to a handsome outsider. A smash at Cannes, where Hunter was named Best Actress, and the film shared the palm door with Chen Kaige's Farewell, My Concubine, the piano became an art house breakout thanks to Miramax's evocative marketing campaign, which led to Oscars for Campion, Hunter, and Anna Paquin for Best Screenplay, Best Actress, and Best Supporting Actress, respectively. It's receded a little over the last few years, even as Campion's own star has risen again with Top of the Lake, so it was great to have a chance to dive back into its murky depths. This is someone else's movie it's probably better to talk about a film that had a really deep personal impact on on me as a, as a piece of artwork um, just because it leaves more room to, to to talk about a film and, and why it is that we love movies yeah so yeah, yeah so that and, and the piano is definitely that film for me um, I saw it when I was 11 okay I think and it was the first film that I saw where I felt like oh this is this is art this is something totally different because my dad was a huge fan of like the 90s sex thriller oh genre right. and like and any kind of thriller but particularly the, the the 90s sex thriller he really got into and we watched everything <laughs> with him like we like classification did not yeah. matter I think my 10th birthday party uh, we watched boys in the hood okay and with with me and all, all my friends, and I think I'm sure that the other parents had no idea what we were watching. I mean, um, a film that could arguably be improved with the addition of an erotic thriller aspect. But I just I thought you were going to say Basic Instinct or something. Just, no, 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 no. Yeah. Just, just, sort of just like, in general, uh, permissiveness. Just, in, in general, yeah. My my dad was just kind of like you know the, the floodgates are open, and as a result, like we actually never uh, had a proper sex talk because I learned it all from movies, <laughs> right? Well, and yeah. so if, if you're watching enough '90s sex thrillers, you don't actually need to, to talk about it because it all becomes very clear yeah um, oh wow to have like that's almost a sitcom premise now to have somebody's image of have, have your conception <laughs> of sexuality and self be shaped by by the glossiest kind of cheesiest genre there is oh yeah I mean did you watch horror movies too did you did you get the, the that weird connection between sex and death no no yeah. my dad was not into horror movies and so we didn't really okay rent those and my a um, little later on, my, my stepmom was really into, like, comedies and also, like, sort of sweeping, you know, Oscar bait oh, dramas. And prestige so I, 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 I saw a lot, of, a lot of those kinds of movies okay. as well. So the piano fit in how? You just happened to be watching it? It's something that, I mean, it, uh, I, I have no idea why it was that they 
that yeah that that my family would have would have rented it except it was just it was a huge movie mm-hmm. at at the time yeah won a couple um, of Oscars right big deal but I saw I remember I saw it before it won um, uh, an Academy Award and um, during the Academy Awards race I, I was so strongly rooting for that movie um, and I remember my sister saw it in the theater I think like. Well, yeah, she saw it in the theater when it first came out, and yeah. I asked her about it, and she said, "No, no, no, I don't think it's something that you would like." And I felt so betrayed by her oh, wow. later on when I eventually saw the film because I just felt like it spoke to something um, <laughs> very primal in me. Obviously, as like you know, an eleven-year-old okay. Canadian, this this movie about um, this you know mute woman in New Zealand. Yes, uh, turn of the century uh, <laughs> brutality and, and okay, wow, all right, that's. That's really fascinating. Like, what a what a great way to see something like that. That to be blindsided by something so idiosyncratic. I mean, you know, say what you will about the movie. It there is nothing else like it. Even Campion's other films don't really feel like this one. I think no, there's, there's I think a continuity. It's interesting it's, something about like the specificity and also the universality of stories. Mm-hmm. You know, Jane Campion was not making that movie for me. I mean, there's a lot of focus when you're pitching films and talking about you know who your audience is going to be and who's going to respond to the film and, you know, who are the people who are going to really love this movie? There's no way, you know, she was sitting at a boardroom table saying, you know what, I think that, you know, like 11 year old boys are going to really be into this movie. Um, (laughs) In Canada. In in Canada. And, and, you know, of of course they weren't, but, but, but I was, and it it made a a very strong impression on me. I love these stories. So many people have brought movies onto the podcast that are just, you know, it was this rogue element in their lives and it changed them. Mm -hmm. Uh, Kelly McCormick had that experience with Phantom of the Paradise. Um, Rick Roberts was talking about Eraserhead that way. Just, they're, they're great and I didn't have that experience and I I miss it. I was just such a voracious consumer of, of cinema as a kid that I just, I ate Mm. everything without thinking about how it was going to affect me. And so it never happened in the moment. Like I never had this thing Mm. happen where you're a different person when you walk out. Yeah. But that's, oh, that's that's so cool. I mean, I definitely did. And I, and I, and I told lots of people about it. I remember making uh, family members sit down and watch it. Like going to the video store and renting it with them being like, this is a, this is a real movie. You're going to, you're going to love this one. And then kind of forcing them to watch it and having them shake their heads and just be a bit confused about <laughs> I don't know if it was because they didn't love the film or if they were very confused by me being such a, a champion of, of that story but yeah. Um, yeah eventually I just my, my dad was was away fairly often and, and I was at home alone a lot and so I would go to the and we had an account at the video store because we rented so many movies and so I would go to the video store uh, and I used to rent it over and over again okay. all the time when everyone was away. So I'd watch it by myself. And this is back in the days when VHS tapes, people don't um, people don't believe me when I tell them this. It used to be that you had, if you wanted a movie, you bought it for $150 or you just rented it a lot. And that made more sense. Like renting something repeatedly was a thing we did. Oh, yeah. And, yeah. Well, and as a kid, I had no money sure, yeah. of my own. But we had this account at the video store. I remember we were part of the Century Club. <laughs> so we could get... A uh, hundred movies for a hundred dollars at this video store. That's very reasonable. So, my dad was just kind of like, "Well, yeah, rent as many movies as, as you want to. It costs basically nothing." So, uh, yeah, that was a, a lot of a lot of rentals at the piano. Ballpark? How many times? I mean, dozens. Oh God, 
Yeah, dozens for sure. Really? Oh, yeah. wow. Yeah. And um, so what was your first experience of it? I mean, how did it feel to you? How did it play to you? What, what, did, what did you take away from it? Um, I, I mean, I, I felt the way that lots of people do when they have really personal experiences of art. I really mm-hmm. felt like that, that she was speaking to me. I just, I so strongly identified with the character of Ada and she was like a hero to me um, because I was, you know, a really quiet and shy kid and I'd been like abused and neglected earlier in my childhood and so when that film came along it was really interesting to see this woman who was so powerless and so powerful Mm -hmm. because it was very much the way that I felt and then she also had this secret artistry you know the secret way of expressing herself Mm -hmm. which is I'm sure the way almost every young person or any young teenager feels about themselves you know they have they're 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 quiet and they're withdrawn and they're wounded but they have this secret special beautiful gift to offer the world and that was her music and so you know i'm sure it was like the the very broad romance of that um that appealed to me and but but it's such a strange story because she never I think it's billed as a romance, but yeah, it's definitely how it was sold, like an exotic love story from the from the people who brought you the English patient. I think is how Miramax positioned it at the time. It's like, well, I guess those words yeah, are true in that order. Interesting, because for her, you know, there's these men who are kind of obsessed with her, but they don't actually really know anything about her, mm-hmm. and so they're like they're in love with their own constructions of her and their own ideas of her. And um, I remember watching the film and being, and, and maybe that's part of the reason why I watched it again and again, is I, I felt so confused about what it was that drew Ada to Baines, because I understood why he would be attracted to her. She's miraculous. She's yeah. so wonderful and so compelling. Um, but he is, you know, he's, he's kind of sullen at first, and he is really rough with her. Um, she never really communicates a strong interest in him, except toward the end, and it's not really clear about whether or not that interest in him is more in opposition to her husband yeah. than, than anything. So it never really feels like a genuine like discovery of love that she's having it's almost like a kind of a desire for escape and a discovery of sex and all of that and so when they yeah when they kind of like they, they take off together and of course she she uh, you know spoiler alert she throws the piano off the side and then and then she goes down uh and to, to the bottom of, of of the ocean and 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 you know tries to to kill herself and then and then ultimately saves herself i i f- remember watching that and and loving it and just wishing so desperately the movie ended with her dead at the bottom of the ocean oh, because it's an appropriate romantic ending like the, cl- the, the classical concept of romanticism not yeah swoony romantic ending probably and, and it felt it felt truer to me and, and that that like that strange turn where you see her later learning to speak and kind of like setting up house with this guy i just felt like why would why would she do that and trying you know maybe part of it was that I was watching the film over and over to unpack mm-hmm. what it was 
that she saw in him or, or why she would why she would do that. I mean, everything feels like it leads to that impulsive moment where she throws herself over over into the water and, and decides to end her life mm. at the piano. Um, I wonder if that isn't... I mean, there's the the impulse to read it as a death fantasy. You know, like, this is just her... the alternative she fashions for herself as she's going down. But I don't think so. I, I, I think... I mean, just given the way that Campion works as a storyteller and the other things she's done, I feel like it's almost her attempt to give the audience a kind of a condescending ending and a way to say that, oh, look, they lived happily ever after, that, that we would know isn't real, that we would somehow feel like it's not right, mm-hmm. and that in our hearts we know that she shouldn't have done that, even if... Survive, like because survival is compromise. It leads to compromising herself and being someone else, mm-hmm. or changing herself in a way that nothing. Yeah, you're right. Nothing in the film has prepared us for. It's, but it's, it doesn't sit. Like it yeah, just it's doesn't. Just, sit it's right. just itchy. Yeah. At at, at the end, like oh, I don't, uh, I don't yeah. know. Which is interesting for such a successful romantic film that yeah. you know had this this huge stamp of approval from Hollywood. Usually, those films feel much more resolved mm. and I'm wondering too if um, maybe that isn't the first one of the earliest signs of Harvey Weinstein's infamous meddling in Miramax productions where he tried to engineer a happy ending and she gave him one that I mean it's not satisfying like it's it's not it's narratively satisfying because mm-hmm. you get a happy ending and a, and a domestic future yeah. and she finally has a, a place and people who accept her but you're yeah you're right it's emotionally Untenable. Mm-hmm. It just doesn't sit. But in a way, I think that that is better than if it were to end with her. You know, with the, the dress is all ballooned around her at, at the bottom of the ocean. Mm-hmm. I think. I don't think people would have liked it as much. And although there's something about that that would be very, um, I don't know. There, there'd be a, a symmetry to that that was yeah. that would be really satisfying. Something about that itchy, uncomfortable piece that's tacked on at the end seems to beg the question, like, well, but what do we want? What do we want for her? Mm-hmm. I mean, why why do we want her to die? You know, why, why do we want to leave her at the bottom of the ocean? Like, why would that be... Why does that feel like it would be more satisfying um, or more real? I think it sort of spirals your brain off into different questions about... Um, women's lives and the kinds of stories that we tell about about women and you know we've seen this character and she's punished so much throughout the story mm. um and it's interesting that she's she's offered this little glimmer of something at the end and it kind of feels like uh it's it's just not real yeah it's not what she deserves but does she deserve to die yeah it's well it, and maybe that's the gothic aspect of it where you know, a woman is brought to a strange place, and generally, when those stories play, they meet their doom. Mm-hmm. So we just assume it's written into the, the the nature of the story. But of course, it doesn't have to be. And and maybe too, it, Campion's other films at that point had been, um, Sweetie and and the miniseries of um, An Angel at My Table, which are mm-hmm. both very downbeat yeah. tales of female suffering. Like the women in those movies aren't happy, and they don't get to be. Yeah, Janet Frame finds peace but it's not the same thing Hmm. and with this you've got someone who goes through hell comes out the other side and that ought to be enough Mm -hmm. but i guess also you 
all the all those pieces that come together at the end are in some ways compromises too. Um, you know, her her daughter has betrayed her, and they're back together, and that's okay. But yeah, not really. That's something the kid has to live with, even if even if her mother isn't fully cognizant of what happened. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's so there's there's a lot of unanswered questions, which is um, part of maybe what's good about that ending is it cracks those questions back open again because if she dies then it's like well yeah Yeah. (laughs) whatever questions you have about those relationships don't really matter because those relationships are over Mm -hmm. um yeah that question like what what happens how how do people go on living after something like that is and it's like it's a whole other movie yes yeah it is isn't it it's another story entirely and a different dynamic and a different Environment, everything about it is different. So, yeah, the only thing, the only sure thing you would take away from from the piano, had it ended with her death, is that Sam Neill is not a good person in this movie, but he's such a nice guy. It's, <laughs> I, I mean, I love watching him play villains because he's one of the sweetest people I've ever met, and it's oh, yeah. just fascinating to watch him do that. Hmm. Um, he fully commits. I mean, he's he's giving everything you need from a proper gothic romance villain yeah. in this. But he kind of has his reasons. I mean, he's a monster, but he's acting from a position that he believes is appropriate, which yeah. just makes the character more complex and, and and harder to disconnect from completely. Like, you can't fully abandon him because he's acting according to his idea of decency and, and patriarchy and masculinity. He just literally doesn't know any better. Mm-hmm. And because they're in a new world, a, a place that they've carved out for themselves... He's making his own rules. They're just terrible. <laughs> They're, he's he's a dictator. He just thinks he's a, a nobleman. Yeah, and and she's she's a piece of his property, mm-hmm. and he feels that he has these rights to her and to her body. And yeah. I mean, she refuses to allow him that, mm-hmm. um, but he doesn't know what else to do, and so he just pursues that, that you know that that gross logic of, of ownership yeah I'm not to trying to argue end. that he has some valid points I suddenly realized that also sounded like a really weird Gamergate kind of defensive dudes doing what dudes need to do but then you have the you immediately have the the alternative presented in in the way Keitel gets into his character which is he's inarticulate and he's crude and he's exotic in a different way mm-hmm. tattoos and everything and, and you just you immediately write him off until you realize that he's so much more than his exterior and and casting Keitel is also kind of ingenious because he wasn't doing a lot of sweet guys at that time like this is a year after Bad Lieutenant you know he's he's done Reservoir Dogs he's just totally changed up everything to make this little movie in New Zealand yeah and he's yeah. he's ideal like he's I, I was trying to figure out if anybody else could have played it. It's one of those roles where it just shapes itself around him. It's true, yeah. And it's, I mean, it's hard because I don't know who the Maori actors were that were around at, at the time. I mean, mm-hmm. there's definitely, yeah. you know, there's has has been talk about oh, how, yeah. how it should have been a, a Maori actor playing that character. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I feel like without question, were that movie made now? Absolutely. Um, yeah. But... Or like, you know, some some kind of Pacific Islander. Yeah, Tamara Morrison had made. I think they'd shot once War Warriors around that time, but it hadn't been released yet. Maybe right around that window. Oh yeah, but I, I want to say that came out a year later in '94. There there were Maori actors available. Yeah. But, oh god, because um, oh, what's what's his name? Who's in Once War Warriors? Was so good. 
Cliff Curtis, yeah. He's in Once Were Warriors, right? I think you're right. I think he plays the younger son. Cliff Curtis would have been amazing. <laughs> I actually think Cliff Curtis is a better actor than, than Harvey <laughs> Keitel. Um, and I think that some people are distracted by, by, by that, and mm-hmm. I, I think I just love the movie a lot and haven't allowed myself to be distracted yeah, but by that know. casting. I mean, I think that that's part of what why the film also has has worked its way so deeply into my psyche i mean it also has elements of you know depression suicide which i have you know like struggled with for my whole life as as a person but Mm -hmm. also you know worked with in um the the films that i've made and the the writing that i've done uh and also the whole uh indigenous aspect of uh the story of the the piano felt really important to me when I was watching it as a kid because it um in in some ways like you know that whole indigenous community is kind of background to to the story the story is really Ada's story but um it's handled in such a good way like like the 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 Maori characters that are in the film feel fully fleshed out I know that people have been been critical of of their depictions a a little bit like from Mm -hmm. kind of like an indigenous arts perspective right but to to the extent that they're on screen like without writing more for their characters to do um i always felt like those characters have a really solid relationship to one another um there's like a, a kind of a looseness and a real love for each other and like a, a strength in, in that community um, as it's as it's portrayed in the film it's really weird because like they're very they're quite they're pretty goofy in a way but they're also very strong yeah. uh, which feels uh, which feels real it feels yeah. real as far as, as as far as my experience and it's something that a lot of movies don't get right you know thinking of a lot of like, Hollywood westerns where you have you know it's basically a story about a couple of white characters and then there's you know these native people in the background. Yeah, this exoticized other backdrop to yeah, the story. Yeah, and often they're they're there and they're on horseback and they're stoic, or they're you know selectively used as victims. Or it's it's very easy to understand who they are and how they fit. Mm-hmm. Um, but in the piano, like the 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 scenes that you have with those characters are really interesting because there's like there's the one with the, the kids and the kids are all like playing that game where they're humping the trees. Yes. Um, and you get to see like these two totally different attitudes towards sexuality, mm-hmm. um, and then again in the the scene with the the, the um, shadow play, do you remember oh, that? That's right, yeah. Um, and they're doing what is it, like the bluebeard, mm-hmm. like scene. A, a, a variation on yeah, bluebeard kind of story we sort of know, but it's been yeah. It's been and so he like comes in and he's and he's got all these like women's heads, the heads of his wives that he's decapitated and hung on the wall and. Um, you know, all of the the British people are there, and they're delighted by it because it's very campy and it's mm-hmm. a very silly take on that story. But the Maori people, for whom that's not part of their canon or traditional right, storytelling, see text. him as this like terrible villain um, about you know, to do this horrible thing to to this woman, and they and they take it very seriously. And so then there's you know. Uh, a, a, a conflict and there's you know some some kind of silliness around that, but yeah, and um, of course it subtextually underlines uh, Sam Neill's relationship to to Hunter as well. I mean, it just 
they, I think those characters would see it more clearly mm-hmm. than even the audience does, than, than we in the audience do. Yeah, yeah, and, absolutely. Uh, as, yeah. As, yeah, so you get to see these different cultural points of view in ways that are not part of the main thrust of the story, but they're all part of the context yeah. of the film that becomes so important. Um, and everything, yeah, beautifully dovetails into into that that story. But you have a really rich indigenous contribution that feels um, beautiful and, and strong and, and lived in, um, and and really unusual. Yeah, and respected uh, in a way that I think Campion. I, it almost feels as though every now and then there's another movie that just sort of wanders into to this main story. It's mm-hmm. not a story, B story. But the yeah the Maori narrative is it, yeah as you say it's happening independently of them they're they're watching them they're watching these white people as much as we're watching them and it's not condescending to them the film gives them their space like, mm-hmm. literally to do whatever it is that they're going to do and suggests more story you know mm-hmm. there's the the way that you know, toward the end of the film when they, they uh, the, the piano is, is put on the the ship um, and there's the um, Ada and Baines and the, the, the Maori sailors are, are, are paddling the, the, the huge canoe yeah. off. And there's the um, older Maori woman who's left on shore and she's watching them go and she's singing like a traveling song and the camera lingers on her for a while and she's very prominent in frame and there's you know a whole suggestion of this other world and this other story. And the camera could have just as easily followed her yeah. and continued to tell that story and I think that that's what those kinds of whole diverse representations on screen look like Like when you you feel like the camera can just move and follow anyone that's that's when you have a real character you have a real person on on screen and I think yeah that was something that was definitely exciting to me as as a kid I have just I keep thinking about whether or not and this is going to sound potentially culturally insensitive, but whether or not Campion's choice of having a white actor play the Keitel role, play, to play Baines, is a comment on his own, like it's a better way to suggest an outsider because he's gone, you know, to, to steal the old, well, not to steal, he's gone native, which is mm-hmm. an, a, an awful term, but in the, in the period it was simply how people dismissed anyone who would choose to embrace another culture. Mm-hmm. But he can't fully be... Maori. He can't be one of them, no matter how hard he tries. He'll always stand out and be distinct, and he'll know himself that he doesn't belong. And so, to me, that was just a way of explaining the, the attraction to Ada. I mean, they're both people who are apart from whatever the culture is that they're in. Mm-hmm. Although, of course, had it been had it been a Maori actor, it would have been a different circumstance. It would have been someone, I guess you'd interpret it as somebody drawn to someone who's so completely other. Mm-hmm. You know, a, a white woman who doesn't speak, who's, who's well, the, separate. The again. character is the character is written to be Maori. He's like, or he's I think he's uh, written to be half Maori, okay. um, and so he did grow up in that area, but he was educated. Oh, that's elsewhere. Right. Go on and come back. And then that's come yeah, back. That's what. And I'm so, saying. I mean, I think that there there is a kind of a, a like a retroactive argument for that casting. I'm, but I'm a hundred percent sure it was just it's just like economics. Yeah, they needed to get this movie made. Um, they knew who they 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 wanted and who they, they could get it made with to, yeah. to get it made at a certain budget, 
and uh, and that's what they had to do. I mean, Cliff Curtis at that time couldn't have helped them get that movie made at that budget. Mm. Yeah, good point. He's a great he's a great actor, but he probably still couldn't get any film finance at that budget. Yeah, even though he's had a ton of recognition. Right, and then I think the following year was was both Once Were Warriors and Rapa Nui, uh, which remember Rapa Nui it was supposed to be this huge oh. deal, and it was just a massive bomb. Yeah, really fascinating, weird attempt to tell a Pacific Islander story. The, you know, the origins of Easter Island and all that by Kevin yeah. Reynolds, director of Waterworld. Uh, poor guy. Poor guy. <laughs> right? like that was his big passion project after Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. Oh, okay. uh, Jason Scott Lee and, yeah, yeah. and Sandrine Holt is in it. Like it's a it's a weirdly overqualified movie for what it ended up being. And yeah. there's an amazing. Uh, action sequence at the very end that that's justifies the existence of the thing huh. but it's definitely a white guy telling an exotic story and it does not play and Curtis is in that too. I think I think all three actors from Rena Owen is in it and I think Morrison is in it too interesting yeah and it was shot right around the same time and did not work would hmm. not have helped anybody but um, but Campion is going in in a different angle and, and honoring literally everybody's story mm-hmm. and you get a movie out of it that is, yeah, it's, it's, you know, 25 years later in the rearview mirror, it looks a little questionable, some of the choices and casting and some of the, the compromises they made to get it made. But I think I, we would probably see the same compromises be made now and just more loudly defended. And at the time, it wasn't a thing. Nobody oh, really yeah. had any questions yeah, about absolutely. it. Absolutely. And I mean, there's so much about it that's so great. And I think she has a connection to that landscape as well which feels um which which feels very connected to that indigenous community like mm-hmm. like the 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 film feels so grounded in the landscape of that place and i feel like there's a kind of a spiritual connection to th- between that story and that that landscape and the way that she tells it there's in 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 a way that is beyond just you know beautiful pictures of this place like there's yeah. a sequence <clears throat> I forget where it takes place in the film exactly but she's um, you know Ada goes outside and there's this you know breeze blows by and she looks at the looks at the trees and you sort of, you, so you cut to the treetops and the camera just kind of pushes in and you see this breeze traveling across and it's and, and and she she also exhales and there's it's like this kind of breath yeah. that travels through the trees and goes goes to Baines and and yeah there's this beautiful spiritual connection between her and the landscape and Baines and it all feels really connected in a way um, that is so unusual for for any film yeah um, and you know I I I feel like that connection to the indigenous characters in that story breathes something into that. And I don't know if that's just like a, a, a weird tenuous connection to make, but um, yeah, I mean, it's coming from the, the voice of someone who loves the movie a lot. Yeah, but I think you're right. I think it all speaks to a certain respect for clarity and content and texture. I mean, she's not just using them as background actors. She's involving them, their culture, their storyline, and she's making a movie about people who lose themselves in a new world mm-hmm. so that world should be as attractive and appealing and, and alive mm-hmm. as you can make it 
And it's not about you know, telling the story in, in an interesting setting as much as it is about really digging into that landscape and digging into that, that sense of place and using it in, in the story. So the story you know, just feels like it's blossoming out of, yeah. out of that landscape and feels really grounded in that place. Yeah, and the sound design is another part of it too. I mean, there's just something going on all the time, both mm-hmm. the sounds of the natural world and the music of the piano. There, there's always activity. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, a, it's a film that's constantly engaging with, with itself and with you. I mean, I remember seeing it in a tiny screening room and they just installed stereo Oh yeah. Or Dol- it was probably Dolby. It was proper, proper, proper Dolby. I assume it was what ninety three. Yeah. And it was busy. It was mm-hmm. the, the room was busy in a way. I mean, I remember Sweetie opens with some insect noises and some sounds mm. of of nature in this suburb where the film is set. But this one was like as immersive as you could be for a mid budget movie in nineteen ninety three. It was yeah. really active. Um, and then the music, of course, is, is such a a huge part of that too, and the score and the, the film that's the the music that's played diegetically in the film. Yeah, yeah it's um, yeah. There was this vogue for a little while for classical movies. I want to say like Immortal Beloved was right around the corner. Bernard Rose's Beethoven movie. Oh yeah. Um, and and you just had all of these films where I guess ten years after Amadeus, people were trying to figure out new ways to use music in cinema. Sure. And this one, you know, because. Because Ada is silent, because Holly Hunter is doing so much uh, with her body and with her face, the music then becomes like just even angry. You can hear when she's playing angry. You can tell. Mm-hmm. Um, she's like it's uh, it's such a great performance, and I'm just I having just watched The Big Sick again the other night, and realizing it's the same person. Oh It's yeah. just so jarring. It is because yeah. she has had this incredible career. She really has. And, yeah, and I still, you know, Raising Arizona is one of my favorite comic performances in the following week she was in Broadcast News, or it felt like it anyway. They were yeah. both released. I love Broadcast News. Yeah. She's so great in that. And that was, what, five years away from this? It's, yeah. It's boggling to me mm-hmm. that she's had that much range over her career and that she's, she can still be that interesting. But then you look at the piano and it's like, yeah, that is her best performance. Like, they're just, it's an alien role she she just submerges herself into it mm-hmm. and then physically too what I think is interesting about her and I, I actually haven't I haven't done any research on her but I'd love to know how she got started as an actor because she is so unlikely yeah she's been in a ton of stuff but she never plays characters that are easily imagined or the way that she plays them are not mm-hmm. is, is, is not easily imagined like she is tiny yeah she has a weird kind of ugly voice yeah a little bit um she's a, a bit odd looking and doesn't she, she just doesn't play the kind of um the the ingenue the bombshell yeah no she, she just doesn't did. have right. any of those kind of classical Hits that when an actor walks into a casting room, a, 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 a director, a casting agent can say, "Oh yeah, you're that kind of woman." Mm-hmm. She's somebody who you can always be like, "Wow, you're really interesting." I can't imagine Where what you would you. be yeah. in, but then 
once given an opportunity and once people see her on screen they can say oh wow you can do you can do so much you're so interesting but i wonder if she's one of those people who had a hard time getting cast for a while because yeah. she's she's got some things yeah, she, she didn't burst out in her 20s, right? Like, by the time, I think, I'm trying to think, like, her first big swoony romantic role was probably always the Spielberg movie. Oh, yeah. But she's playing someone who is already, like, she's lived. Like, she's had a, a life, she's had a relationship with, mm-hmm. with Dreyfus, and that's over when the movie begins, really. Yeah. I mean, they're sort of... Yeah. He's dead in the first 10 minutes, right? I mean, that's how that goes. And so she's playing someone in mourning and reawakening, and maybe that's the the way you get into somebody who's in their 30s and, and looking for something like this. But it is such a... Yeah, she's had such an odd career because she's clearly young in Raising Arizona or she's playing younger than she is. Edwina is not a fully formed adult human, yeah. but she is a fully formed character. And mm-hmm. I guess maybe that's it. If you start with the Coen brothers, there's nowhere to go but up and people immediately know that you're daring and different and like they... I guess, well, the Coens were the Coens by then, right? It was two movies in. Yeah. They'd already established themselves. Oh, yeah, for sure. Definitely directors. Directors people were, were looking at and watching and watching performances and loving. Like, people are obsessed with those movies. And yeah. so they, you know, those, those actors immediately had followings. And yeah, yeah. But it is. She's had a really strange, nonconformist career, now that you mention it. And for some reason, my brain keeps putting her in the right stuff. She's not in it. But I can imagine her very easily as one of the astronauts' wives. Like it just felt like those sketched characters who were also really, really lived in. Yeah, she would have fit in there. Like that's the kind of ensemble picture. I don't know why my brain is doing that. Yeah, that's the kind of thing she would she would be but, able to to stand out. Yeah, in. you want to turn around and realize, oh, she's. I've been watching her all along. I just mm-hmm. never really understood who she is. Like no, she popped up, fully formed, and yeah, and in this, she's doing something that no one had seen her do before, even then. Like after amazing everybody and astonishing everybody with her range, this comes out, mm-hmm. and even the accent works the, in the voiceover because she's playing someone who isn't her in right. any way. She, I think she's supposed to be Scottish or Irish. She has a lilt in the voiceover. Yeah, I think she's. It's not she's my Scottish. Voice yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and and the voice that she puts on because there's so little of that voiceover. She could, she could kind of sell it mm-hmm. by by changing her voice because it's so much. Like higher and softer than her voice normally is. She yeah. doesn't. Um, I think it was. I mean, the piano was the first movie that I ever saw her in. And I, was I was very alarmed yeah. uh, when I saw her in. I, for, I forget that the next thing I, that, that 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 she was in that I saw because just like what is this weird, <laughs> low, strange drawl that that she has? It's yeah. like completely unlike uh, how she is in, in that movie. That would be such a weird place to see her first too, because you're seeing. Yeah, it's not only is it something she'd never done before, it's not something she ever did again. Like that kind of role didn't mm-hmm. it just she didn't go back to that kind of thing either. She did think I just I mean I'm sure she could have like gotten drawn into the yeah. um uh Merchant Ivory yeah, wind tunnel like Helena Bon Carter did for a little while and done those kinds of period Yeah. Be forced to fight her way out of them again. Yeah. Out of the corset. Yeah. (laughs) But it's... Kate Winslet, she also got drawn into that. Oh, that's right. She was the go-to for like five years. Yeah. Um, Who is it now? Oh, Claire Foy, I assume. The Queen and and, um, Breathe and things like that. Right. The proper roles. Emily Blunt almost got caught, but she pivoted. Yes. Yeah. She's too weird. That's what I really love about Emily Blunt. She's too weird to be constrained by these 
these roles. She just wants to do strange comedies and go off and be goofy. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's a weird place. Like it's a it's a pocket that's again it's easy to trap somebody in it. And I don't think Holly Hunter would ever be trapped, right? Like she immediately went off and did that. I want to say it was the same year. It might have been before the Positively True Adventures of the the uh, Positively True Life Adventures of the Incredible Texas Cheerleader Murdering Moms, an HBO movie that is absolutely amazing, and she is phenomenal in it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I forgot about that. It's like a prequel to where we are now with self-aware television. Yeah. Um, But that, I think, I'm I'm almost positive she made it within hours of my scene. (laughs) Um, Because she is just this amazing force of, of... nature in, mm-hmm. in terms of performance even in the big sick like her one shouting scene everything quiets like the whole the sound design drops out because it's afraid of her everything pulls her in and that that have you seen the I have, yeah I have, the scene yeah. in the club where she yeah. just loses it for two seconds yeah and it's like oh yeah that's what that's what rage is mm-hmm. i totally get that and and i'm just yeah again i'm just stunned that she could do something like the piano where she can't speak where she can't use that piece of her artillery mm-hmm. and still be as compelling and, and and striking I mean she dominates the frame and she's a foot tall a foot shorter than everybody else in it like Paquin's mm-hmm. taller than her at a couple of shots yeah. it's uh, and we, yeah we shouldn't really write off Anna Paquin either because as as bizarre as it is you know the youngest Oscar winner and all that she's phenomenal it's a she's great phenomenal. performance oh my gosh I wanted to be her I was so <laughs> jealous of her and then when she gave, went up during the Academy Awards and she was wearing that weird bejeweled oh, beret. Right, the purple thing. Yeah, I felt like I was winning the Academy Award. <laughs> I was so like excited and weirdly proud of her. Oh, wow. I was just worried she'd pass out the hyperventilating. Oh, I mean, yeah. right? if, if you watch that live, you knew fear. You knew terror for this little girl who yeah. was just oh. about to explode. Yeah, she really was. Yeah. Um, I mean, I wonder if that's part of what makes the film or what helps the film to be really special is that um, everything is centering around this performance that is mute. And from the first day of the script, they knew that was the conceit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so everything from when you're pulling in the, the DP, when you're talking with the other actors, when you're um, talking with the, the sound designer and, and deciding on the music, like you'd be so aware every step of the way that that stuff is going to matter a hundred times more yeah. because the central performance is silent and, and being so worried in the pre-production that everything needs to be so expressive and beautiful and poetic and meaningful because you just can't lean on that crutch yeah. of dialogue in quite the same way. And they don't cover for the character in the way that certain other films, like I'm thinking like Children of a Lesser God where William Hurt is essentially mm. repeating back all the dialogue that Marley Matlin is signing. People are forced to interpret her in this mm-hmm. film, but they don't interpret for her. There's there's no one talking for her. I mean, they're sort of... Well, her she, daughter presumes to speak for her briefly, but it goes away very quickly once they start fighting. Well, yeah, I mean, her and her daughter does speak for her, and she doesn't care when her daughter gets it wrong. Yeah. And she has no desire to communicate. Mm-hmm. You know, which is which is also rare, I think, for a character that's, that's mute. Um... Usually, I feel like the, those kinds of representations are, are, are characters who are desperate to kind of be heard and communicate, and she does not give a shit. Yeah, she doesn't want to be here. She doesn't like anyone. She's not going to apologize for it, um, and it makes her 
very lovable <laughs> in the strangest way. Yeah. Well, you respect her anger. I think mm-hmm. very quickly we understand where it's coming from and we get it. Like, we get her. It's almost, as you were saying that, I was just thinking, just in the same way that now people could maybe engage with it on the casting question, it's also a refutation of an ableist narrative, which is only something we've started talking about really in the last five years as a concept. But it really is a film where the character who is, in theory, disabled is actually more functional and more complete than anybody else in the picture. Holly Hunter doesn't have that part of her arsenal, of of her voice. Mm -hmm. But with Ada, the silence is part of Ada's arsenal. She Mm -hmm. uses it. Oh, yeah. And that's, yeah, that's what makes her the hero, really, instead of a victim. Which, you know, in a gothic romance, you could interpret this character as she's there to suffer because men don't understand her. And that happens, but at no point does it feel like she's losing, right? Like, she's still... Yeah. She triumphs. Like she's a triumphant character. Definitely. And, and maybe I think that's... for people who, and like, like I was when, a kid, when I was a kid, feeling very um, helpless and voiceless to see somebody who was so completely voiceless and also absolutely not helpless. Yeah. Seeing, seeing her exercise her power um, was a really interesting and um, redeeming... Uh, thing to experience on yeah. screen, um, but oh, what was I going to say? Uh, it's gone. Yeah, it's okay. <laughs> it'll it'll come back in two minutes. That's how this works. Uh, I was going to ask, like, did I mean, did the other people you showed it to feel that way? Did anybody respond to it the same way, or was it just a situational thing? No, <laughs> absolutely not. I've never, yeah, I've never shown it to anyone who liked it as much as I did. Okay. Um, and when was the last time? I mean, how? Do you still revisit it? or? Yeah, the last person I showed it to was actually um, Sarah Kalaski, who's my uh, collaborator on, on Great, Great, Great. Yeah. And I th- was astounded that she'd never seen it. And it was maybe a couple of years ago that okay. I sat her down and said, oh, this is such a great movie. It's going to change your life. And she, I think she was a bit bored by it. It didn't have the same the same resonance. I mean, I think, I think that, that all kinds of pieces of art are like that, especially things that you're exposed to when you're young. Like you, you never love a book the way you love a book that you feel like you discover when you're, I don't know, for me, it was like 14, yeah, like 13, yeah. 14. And, um, the, that, that book for me was the, the, the Grapes of Wrath and I, I, I hate when people say mean things about the Grapes of Wrath but how can you, what is what is there mean to say oh who's, say, who's shit talking the Grapes of Wrath so many people we will have words of why <sighs> what's wrong I'm, with not, I'm not even going to get started on it but I think but yeah, yeah. so I think that I <laughs> have unfair expectations of, of people's love for that movie because my love is based in that like very early um that formative discovery, yeah. Formative discovery, just feverish, passionate love for, for, for that movie because it just felt like it um, opened up my eyes in a way that, that hadn't been done before. Yeah. For I some reason, that. Ninja Turtles just didn't do it. It took it took Jane Campion and the piano. Oh, <laughs> Ninja Turtles doesn't open anybody's eyes. Just, I mean, unless they're on something already. That's yeah. And that's a nightmare experience that I wouldn't wish on anybody. <laughs> um, the, yeah, the... the the, the the concept of 
you know, like owning a movie like that, uh, discovering something and keeping it close to you and then sharing it with other people. I just, I mean, that's what we do with art, right? That's how that's supposed to work. And uh, it's funny, too, that Campion has had such a, I was going to say a spotty career, but I don't know that it's true. Like, if you look back on her work since the piano, you get The Portrait of a Lady, which was, I mean, it's, it's a Jane Campion film through and through, but it was also kind of a misunderstood attempt at investigating Henry James. It was just before um, people started doing active subversion of classics in their adaptations. Mm -hmm. um, Patricia Rosamond's Mansfield Park came out right afterwards, I think, and it just missed its window, and people didn't quite get what she was doing uh, with it. And then she did that Meg Ryan erotic thriller in the cut with Mark Ruffalo that no one talks about, but is... Hideous Kinky. Hideous Kinky, that's right. I forget about Hideous Kinky. Um, and, and Bright Star, which nobody gave any love to, which is just, I, I had to buy the Blu-ray from France. There is no decent Blu-ray edition of it in North America or England. Really? That's yeah. so interesting, because I remember at TIFF, people yeah. loved it. And can it. too. It just came out like a... rave. Yeah, just, yeah, it just didn't take. I wonder if it's because maybe the distributors went under or something, but... It's it's a marvelous film, and then now that she's doing Top of the Lake, she's sort of reclaimed her position as, you know, New Zealand's premier storyteller, really, because Peter Jackson's off doing things that aren't, you know, speaking to people on a yeah. on an emotional or dramatic level. Sorry, he's just not. Uh, but uh, someone's going to write in about the Hobbit. Mm-hmm. But um, well, now Taika Waititi's been taken away by Thor. That's right. Well, but I love the idea that he gets to do whatever he wants with it. I mean, <laughs> yeah, no, no, for sure. I'm I'm very yeah. excited for 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 Thor, but. Um, yeah, yeah, I think he's, he's he's done making small personal movies for a little right, while. Yeah. He's he's going to make a shit ton of money for These a things. little while. And yeah, and you know, take off laughing. Bless him. Exactly. Yeah. I can think of no one else who deserves a bigger blank check. Really, he's yeah. such a weird artist. I love him. Yeah, but Campion is just settled into this thing now where she is doing stark, emotional, bleak work in New Zealand. Like she's back where she was mm-hmm. after this time in the weeds, and and it's such a a strange career because it's so consistent, right? There's something, yeah, there's something in all of those movies that's, that's really interesting. Like what, mm. even, even the film that nobody talks about in the cut with Meg Ryan, like there's still an intellect at work. She's yeah. still working through something and, um, yeah, it might not be like a totally resolved, perfect work, but that's not, what we need artists for. You know, yeah. We need artists to, to to think about things and wrestle through things. And sometimes you need to wrestle with something, make it, get it out of the way in order to, to, to make the next thing. And I think that, um, yeah, she's an amazing filmmaker and has a really special voice. And you know, you might not like all her movies, but there's always something. There's always questions that she's asking. There's always something that she's wrestling with. Yeah. I'm um, waiting for In the Cut to be rediscovered because in light of Top of the Lake, it kind of lines up. Hmm. You know, it's a thriller about violence against women and, and and attraction to something that probably isn't good for you in a way that is expressed as an erotic thriller that isn't an erotic thriller. I mean, it's just... It's, it's what you get if an artist is given this material that she finds the pulp and discards it because that's not where her interests lie. Mm-hmm. But as a result, it also takes all the tension out of the thing that people think they're buying a ticket to see. Yeah. So, yeah, sure. yeah I, there's a Blu-ray here somewhere. I, it was released on a double bill with some other Sony pictures, like a, some other Columbia pictures dud. 
Oh, yeah. the perceived failure double pack that they released. You know, those cheap ones that came out a little while ago? Yeah, yeah. The, we couldn't market these on our own. Here's Hollywood Homicide and Hudson Hawk. Yeah. They both start with H's. <laughs> but the three ninety nine thing. I found it at a, I found it at Canadian Tire of all places. Oh, okay. I was going to say Walmart. Yeah, it's, like yeah, it's probably there, thing. too. Uh, but it is such a weird thing for her to be doing. And the piano, not, you know, not coincidentally, is a film about sex and violence and how the two are you know triggers for one another and 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 what desire leads to i mean she hasn't changed her tune and in 25 years she's still interested in the same stuff or she's found a way to make that stuff interesting yeah which i suppose is more important sorry that was a leading that wasn't even really a question that was just me yeah i mean I, I think i think that it's i think it's always been interesting i think the way that she deals with those things is, has always been interesting but um maybe not as, as, as consistent or as consistently entertaining yeah. or commercially successful. Maybe that's just, it's yeah. just that simple. Like Bright star has almost no sex in it, but it's about desire mm. and it's swooningly romantic and beautifully realized. I mean, just, you know, the, the purple imagery, the just literally reflecting Keats's prose and in, in, in the frame, it's just such a beautiful film. And, yeah, there are people who don't know it exists, and it makes me sad. That's one yeah. I forced on people for a while. Just like, I think, haven't you missed this. Kind I think of thing. that it. I think that you're right. That there was an issue with the distributor. Yeah, it was TVA in Canada. I know. I don't know who distributed, who put it out in the states, but they just. Yeah, for whatever reason, no high def version, and it is gorgeous. Just such a sumptuous experience. Hmm. So, if nothing else, if anyone is listening, please start lobbying Criterion to release Bright Star. That would be very nice. Thank oh, you. that would be really great. Yeah. And they've done Campion before. They know the territory. Yeah. It's not like they couldn't have a relationship with it. Um, and it's the other thing I was going to say, just noticing uh, that both you and Sarah picked films by really distinct female filmmakers with, with you know, a specific vision. You've got this, and, and she chose um, Lynn Ramsey's Morvan Caller. Yeah, which did she show that one to you by any chance? I'm just wondering. You mentioned you showed this to her. Yeah, I think that I did watch that with Sarah yeah. the, the first time. And this is what people do; they share their passions. It's great. Yeah, um, and so to just the, the closing question on the podcast is is always the same, which is what of if anything of of the piano have you borrowed or stolen or quoted or absorbed into your own creative DNA? Oh man, I think that it's impossible for me. To, to know I think that I'm that it's a movie that I'm so close to yeah. that uh, I mean I have I don't, I don't I've never consciously stolen anything from that film but I think that it is very well represented in my creative DNA <laughs> and um, yeah if someone were to, to comb through the, the things I've done and it, it would be pretty obvious that, that it was there yeah I was thinking about it in terms of great 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 and and it's almost a mirror image of it because your film is about someone who can't articulate what she wants and mm. the piano is about a woman who like maybe physically can't explain it but is through her through her lack of speech but is very clear about her desires throughout mm-hmm. and so you've made the anti-piano in a completely different context yeah no, no I, I, I think I think you're right. I mean, I think that that's why that's why Ada is a hero because she does so clearly know what she wants, and she just fights her way through uh, to get it. And maybe that's why she's still a hero for me, and and why I make great, great, great the way that that I did or the way that we did, um, because I feel like for 
in most situations in my life, I don't have that that clarity. Mm-hmm. I I wish I had that that clarity and that ferocity to just dig through and you know, get get what I want and make it happen at all costs. Um, but uh, I remembered the thing that I that I what was going to say before, which was um, a huge amount of, of of Ada's strength comes from her um, her powers as as a woman because there there are certain things that they they could do to women and certain things that they that they weren't able to do to women at that time and also because of her her class at that time you know she's really sheltered by her class Mm -hmm. because if um samuel's character were written to be a more um brusque guy you know more more than he is he would have just you know beaten her senseless killed her or um put her on a boat and sent her back home and then there right. wouldn't have been a story. But so they needed to create a situation where she would be protected by her class enough that she could refuse to speak to people. She could really kind of tear through society and do what she pleases and not pay the price for that until the very end, until right. she takes it too far. And his illusion of nobility is keeping him from reacting more uh, brutally mm-hmm. because even though he's you know he's clearly not a good person and he's not ultimately unwilling to be violent mm-hmm. and horrifically so he's he's giving himself credit for restraining himself the whole time he's too you know his privilege keeps him from harming her and right absolutely i'm sure allows... he's telling himself that he's being a very noble gentle person yes exactly until he cuts her finger off yeah well <laughs> you know sooner or later the monster comes out it's just uh, it's uh, yeah that, that's and that gives the film its underpinning of tension too because we know this isn't going to end well you mm-hmm. can just I mean, just given the way that the film opens and given the way that um, the, the, the the affair is presented it's, it's something that's tense and and hidden mm-hmm. and it's only a matter of time throughout that something something very bad is coming yeah, I mean, you have a very strong woman between two extremely weak men. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not its not going to work out well. Yeah, and a child who thinks she's being strong but is actually just... Mm. She's a kid. She doesn't know any better. She literally thinks she's helping. And she's angry. And that's or how just, it comes out. She's just kind of like instigating things because it's interesting because she's bored. Mm. You know, kids get bored and are spiteful and, you know, it doesn't mean that they suddenly hate their, their parents or anything. It's just... Yeah. It's just coming out. They're, they're, they're testing. They're seeing, they're seeing what happens in the world. Like, if I do this, what will the impact of that be? Yeah. And she just takes it a little farther than, yeah. than most. I guess I'm, I'm glad you didn't identify with her when you were watching it as an 11-year-old, because some terrible things might have come from that. Right. <laughs> yeah, no. My thanks to Adam Garnett-Jones, whose excellent great-great-great is now available to rent or buy on iTunes. You should do that. It's a very good movie, and Sarah Kalaski is terrific in it. And by all means, go into our archives to pull up her episode on Morvern Caller when you have a chance. Thanks also to Winnie Wong. She knows what she did. You can find Adam on Twitter at Adam Garnet Jones, all one word, and you can find The Piano on Blu-ray and DVD from Lionsgate in the USA and from Entertainment One in Canada. It's also available on iTunes and Google Play. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Norm Wilner and elsewhere on the internet at nowtoronto.com. You can also find this podcast on Twitter at Semcast, S-E-M-Cast, and on the web at someoneelsesmovie.com. 
If you feel like leaving a review on iTunes or Apple Podcasts, that would be greatly appreciated. Every little bit helps. It really does. Thanks for your support, and thanks for listening.